Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. And we're live from New York. It is not Saturday night. It is Friday morning. But it is not today. <laughs> yes. At least for us, from when we are recording, it is the day after Thanksgiving. We're feeling full, we're feeling tired. And we're feeling ready for some deals. And we're feeling thankful. Deals. It's Black Friday. <laughs> oh, so true. <laughs> I hope you guys didn't miss it. I know this comes out on Tuesday, but yeah. get on those deals. Get on those deals. <laughs> They'll probably last a little bit longer after Black Friday, right? Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Well, I don't really think we have anything else to talk about before we jump into this week's story, so why don't we just get into it? Let's do it. Okay. So this week, we're going to be talking about Greg Rasmussen, or Rasmussen. Not quite sure. We're going to go with Rasmussen. Greg Rasmussen was born on April 30th, 1956 in London. However, at 11 years old, his parents moved him to what was then Rhodesia, or today, modern-day Zimbabwe where he developed a strong affinity for wildlife to the point of spending all of his spare time in the laboratories of the Natural History Museum. Mans likes science and wildlife. Greg briefly left Zimbabwe for school before he came back to acquire a few more degrees in order to pursue a career in wildlife. A few degrees. A few. Wow. He is educated and loves wildlife. I mean, not just a little bit educated, like... Super educated. Super. We love that. Three degrees? Bro, how long were you in school? Did he double major? <laughs> Why don't I call him I have up? so many questions. <laughs> well, let's save the questions for do that? the other part of the story. This is the background. I'm giving you fluff, my guy. Okay, sorry. In 1988, he was offered a job observing the painted dogs in a national park in Zimbabwe, and he established the Painted Dog Conservation Project in 2002 and the Painted Dog Research Trust in 2014. So for many years of his life, he has dedicated his time to saving this rare species of wild dog called the painted dogs, which are actually on the brink of extinction. And I think there's only like 7,000 left in the world. So he's fighting the good fight for these dogs. He had always been passionate about wildlife. Even as a child, he loved learning about different animals and being out in the African bush. It holds an endless fascination for Greg. The African wilderness is ever-changing. There is so much to learn, and Greg said it's like a book that never ends. In June of 2003, Greg was one of the few pilots in the area, and although he was deep into one of his own projects, he agreed to help a fellow conservationist in the area with a lost rhino search. People were really concerned about this rhino, and since the National Park asked if he would assist in the search, he of course agreed. So they're trying to find a rhino yes. in the African bush. Hell yeah. How hard could it be? <laughs> I mean, they're not that big, right? Rhinos? Like, well, I or mean, the if, African... you're from, if you're like looking at it from a plane. Well, it was going to be not an easy task. It's not like they're in, you know, a zoo. It's like the African bush. So he had to search. Although the rhino was like microchipped i think kind of like they a dog <laughs> yeah they chipped the rhino because they were trying to keep track of him but then they lost him that would be hilarious if the rhinos had conspiracy theories what like, dude they're chipping us <laughs> like, dude no actually i swear to god there's a chip in my ass someone <laughs> someone better believe me 
no, that's that's exactly what happened. But I think he got out of the range of like knowing where the rhino was. And it's a problem because poachers are real. So they needed to find this rhino. Mm. Greg was a very capable pilot. However, he knew he was going to need intense concentration to be able to both fly the plane and track the animal below. That was already going to be difficult, but he was also going to be flying over unfamiliar terrain. He was fully aware of how difficult this trip was going to be, but with the looming threat of poachers out there, he felt like he couldn't turn his back on this rhino. He would be flying an ultralight plane, which was a cheap and efficient option to fly in the African bush, but it was also very dangerous to fly under certain weather conditions. When the temperatures were very hot, it made it very tricky to fly this plane because the air was thinner when it was hot, so it was harder to keep the plane like up in the air, which is the whole point of a plane. You keep it up in the air. <laughs> Man, yeah. And also, you're in Africa. Isn't it going to be hot as shit, at least where you are? Right. So maybe... So every day. <laughs> yeah, so maybe that's not the best option of plane, but that's what they were working with, so... Yeah, no, it's crazy to me that that makes a difference. I know. But must have been a dry heat. Sure. Uh-huh. It's a dry heat. That's not, we're not in Australia. Why am I talking like that? That wasn't even a very good Australian accent. We're moving on. Let's move on. <laughs> Don't worry about me. I'm tired. It's early. I'm tired. It's early. It's New York. It's New York. <laughs> I actually truly cannot stop talking with a New York accent. It's getting worse. I think I'm, I'm evolving into my final form, which is New York person. Except that we'll live in Ann Arbor. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah, I'll be a Midwestern girl at some point, but I will have a New York accent <laughs> and I will talk to everyone with my hands and that's all. <laughs> anyway, we're getting off track. Let's get back to the rhino. Greg would be flying in a very harsh and dry and rocky area that he was unfamiliar with. And this rhino was electronically tagged, and as he was flying over this rugged area, his tracker had picked up the rhino. So he hadn't actually seen it, but he did know that it was somewhere nearby, and he realized that it was alive because there were movements on the, you know, signals. So as he started to turn the plane and circle out, suddenly the plane went into a wing stall, which basically meant that one wing was flying and the other wing wasn't. So this was a propeller plane, I believe, and one of the propellers was working and the other one was not. So he had this gut-wrenching feeling because he knew that this was very bad. He put full power on the rudder and was pulling back on the stick and he was doing everything right, but nothing was working. The plane started to go down in a spiral. The ground was coming up really fast. And there was a split second Greg had where he knew he was past the point of no return. And he knew that he was going to crash. And that is exactly what happened. After impact, Greg knew that he was alive, but he almost didn't want to open his eyes. He didn't want to face what he was about to go through. He was totally dazed and stunned, but he was alive. As he lay there, he felt a steady drip of petrol on his face and body, and that definitely snapped him out of the shock he was in, and he immediately started coughing up this petrol that had dripped into his mouth and eyes, Ooh. which is gross. He undid the seatbelt and sprung out of his seat and dragged himself out of the plane and onto the ground. He was petrified of the idea of petrol on himself and the plane catching on fire. He had this intense image of himself burning alive in a wall of fire, and he dragged himself backward on the ground as far away as possible. 
but as he dragged himself, he realized that his legs were doing absolutely nothing as he moved. But he just had to get away from the plane. I can't imagine having literal gasoline on you in a crashed plane can be very comforting. So, in your mouth. Yeah, in your mouth and your eyes. Dude, that's disgusting. Pretty gross. Yeah, I mean, this is a nightmare. Like, you, your legs don't work. You can't run away. Yeah. You're gonna burn alive. Like, and that's just the beginning of it. So finally, he lay on his back on the ground for a moment before he thought to himself, "Mayday! I have to call Mayday." And he really didn't want to go back near the plane, but he had to put out a distress signal. It was his only means of survival at that point, and the quicker he got the message out, the better. He had no survival gear with him, no food, no water, and nobody knew he had gone down or where he had been flying to begin with. And to top it all off, he was severely injured and couldn't move his legs. Greg managed to drag himself back to the plane and grabbed for the radio and began yelling Mayday into it, but as he put it up to his face, he realized that it was very hot in his hands and he had to drop it because it had burned him. The crash had made the batteries short out and fried his only means of survival, the emergency radio. After that, things only got worse, because in the moment after realizing he had no way of contacting anyone, the full extent of his injuries set in, which meant that he was in excruciating pain. On the outside, Greg only had a few superficial scrapes, but on the inside, he was bleeding badly, and his legs were broken in six places. He was dealing with a pain that he had never even come close to feeling in the past. He said his legs felt like they were going to explode, And as he dragged himself away from the plane once again, his feet were basically like jelly, just like moving with the dirt underneath him. No. Yeah. Thankfully, he did realize he was able to wiggle his toes, which meant that he wasn't completely paralyzed, but he was still in very bad shape. Good news? (laughs) Yeah, let's find the bright side. The very small silver lining there, I guess. I don't know. He felt like he had broken both of his femurs, and each time he moved, he could feel his muscles contracting around the jagged, broken femurs and a sickening creak in his pelvis, which too was broken. I feel that viscerally, because this is what happens when you dislocate your shoulders, your muscles will like spasm around it, and that sounds like what's happening, so I just felt that in my bones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it was like his bones were like snapped, you know, so they were like splintered uh, yeah. and <laughs> he, let's no, be very no. uncomfortable for a yeah. moment. Um, yeah, that sounds unfun. Can I say that, everyone? Yeah. I think we can all agree that sounds not fun. I'm all tensed up. Yeah. But that being said, he knew he had to stay in control of the situation because if he lost control, then he would be a goner. Greg started to take stock of the situation, and it really set in that there was no calling 999 for help, and the only way he was going to get out of there was by doing it himself. By that time, it was around 9am, and it had been an hour since the crash. He was over 70 miles away from the nearest road. It was brutally hot. And there was a chance he would literally be baked in the African sun, which meant that by the time anyone realized he was in trouble, it might already be too late. If he did manage to survive the heat and the exposure, he'd then have to face the hungry predators that came out to hunt at night. And since he was unable to move, he was an extremely easy meal. But the only thing he could think about was the excruciating pain in his legs. 
His ankles felt like they were going to explode because he had boots on, so there was nowhere for the swelling to go. So his his feet were literally swelling to the point where they couldn't fit in his boots, and if he, he felt like if he couldn't get the boots off, his feet would explode. I mean, that's probably not what would actually happen, but that's how it felt. And did he have to, like, cut him off his feet? He's going to have to try to get his boots off his feet, and we're going to talk about that, but... He knew he needed to get his boots off because if they stayed on like that, he would get gangrene and potentially lose his feet or worse than that, his legs. He did manage to tilt his head back as he lay flat on the ground and saw that behind him was a tree. He thought that if he could get himself to that tree, he could sit himself up and tilt his body forward. That way he could get to his shoelaces and hopefully get the boots off. Dude, I can't imagine pulling these off. I truly cannot imagine the pain. Like, I, I can't even fathom it because I've never been in that much pain. Yeah. And to the universe, I hope to never be. Yeah. <laughs> Just putting that out there. Whatever. Greg was desperate to stop the pain he was feeling. He managed to drag himself backward and make it to the tree. But the universe really said a big F you to Greg that day because the only tree around him happened to be a thorn tree. So as he propped himself up, he was directly on sharp thorns. Great. Great, right? Why not? Surprisingly, as the thorns dug deep into his back, he thought to himself that they actually might be useful. He pulled a twig off the tree just above his head that had a hooked thorn on the end of it. So he thought that he could use it to pick the laces apart to get his boots off. Which I think is pretty cool. That's pretty resourceful. I don't know that if if I was leaning against a thorny tree, I'd be like, oh, I'll use these thorns. Yeah, but I'm also wondering how this is better than his fingers. Well, he couldn't move forward. He could like barely move. He was in so much pain. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it is better. Okay, so he's got a little tool now. Exactly. As he lay there, he could hardly focus through the pain. Slowly, he used the twig to fiddle with his laces to get them undone. The entire time, he was thinking about that if he couldn't get his boots off, he would lose his feet, which was a pretty good motivator. After getting each of the boots' laces untied, he then had to use the twig to pull the laces through each of the eyelets to get them completely out of the boots so that he could slide his feet out. It seems like such a simple task, but it was a nightmare. He had to stay as focused as possible and try not to move around so much because with each jerk of the boot, he was in even more pain. When he did manage to free his laces from the boots, it was very disappointing to discover that even though he had more space for his feet, it was just as painful. His feet had continued swelling, which meant that his boots needed to come off completely. But to do that, he was going to need something to push them off and he looked around and saw this big stick he could use to push them off. But each time he even grazed his foot with the stick, it was, again, extremely painful. In that moment, he had a flashback to a John Wayne movie where someone had bit something while doing something painful, or something painful happened, like someone was getting cut and they bit down on a rag or something like that. So he grabbed another small stick that was nearby and put it in his mouth to bite down on while he pushed his boots off. But as he used the bigger stick to push and he bit down on the stick in his mouth, it crumbled into like a dust in his mouth because the stick he had put in his mouth had rotted and was also full of termites. Can you believe that? Oh my god. What shit luck? I I mean, I don't think you can get worse luck. No. Free protein? 
Okay, maybe, but also disgusting. He basically had a mouthful of sawdust and termites. So it's not even like it was, like, good at all. Not that eating any kind of bug is good, but it was, like, extra drying out his mouth because it was, like, dust and there was just bugs crawling around as well, which is a horrifying image to to me. Yeah. (laughs) So it was disgusting. And to top it off, his mouth was even drier than before. But he was mad at that point, so with everything in him, he pushed on his boots with enough force to get each of them off as he screamed out in pain, and after that, he just lay there. The only thing he had done was taken off his boots, but that was how hard it was. Greg looked at his watch, and he saw that the whole boot ordeal had taken him two and a half hours. Oh my god. 200 miles away, Greg's best friend and colleague Peter Blinston was waiting for him to return from his trip. The two of them co-ran this conservation project for the painted dogs, and that afternoon as he waited, the phone rang, which gave him a bad feeling. It was his friend and colleague Norman English who had told him that Greg was missing. Peter was in complete shock and said that his body went ice cold when he got the news. He was terrified for his friend and knew he had to go out and try to find him. In the heat of the midday sun, the temperature was over 100 degrees. It was around 12 p.m. and had been four hours since the crash. There wasn't an ounce of moisture in the air, and Greg hadn't had water at that point for over 24 hours. The dehydration was setting in very quickly. He hadn't had water all day since an elephant had broken their water pipes in the area that he had taken off from. Don't you hate when an elephant breaks your water pipes? Dude. (laughs) Because I know I sure do. That's crazy. It's just that nature's not having it right now. Yeah, he's just got the worst luck. He, like, could not have any water because the elephant. And he's like, oh, I'm just going to go search for this rhino. I don't need to bring anything. And now he's only four hours into his, like, crash or into missing, and he's he hasn't had water in over 24 hours. You can't start off in a much worse position. Yeah. Greg had never experienced that level of thirst. He didn't feel thirsty. It felt like he was being tortured. His skin on the roof of his mouth didn't even feel like skin anymore. As Greg lay there against the tree, he saw a vulture landed nearby and looked at him as if he was going to be an easy meal. But he thought to himself, not yet. (laughs) Or not today. (laughs) Not (laughs) today. Predators were a major concern for Greg, which was ironic because these were the very animals he had dedicated his life to saving. Greg wasn't necessarily scared of the predators themselves. He was scared because he couldn't run away from them. He knew he needed to find some kind of shelter to get himself out of sight of these potential predators and get out of the sun. And his only option at that point was the plane. He began the slow journey back to the plane, dragging himself along the ground on his back once again. Every movement was agony, but it was that or die. He got about halfway between the tree and the plane, and he couldn't pull himself anymore. He was just completely weak. But because he was a biologist, he knew that some species moved more efficiently on their stomachs so he decided to try and turn himself over. Greg knew that turning himself over would be a very painful process. He used his shoelaces and the large stick he still had to tie the stick to his right leg. 
So he basically tied this big long stick to his right leg with his shoelaces. And with everything in him, he pulled on the laces that were around his leg and the stick and lifted his leg up to then flip over to his stomach, which, as we can imagine, was very painful. I'm balled up inside. Yeah. That's how much... You look physically uncomfortable. Yeah, I know. I'm just very... That has to be so painful. I'm. His legs are each broken in six places? Yeah. Or, I mean, I don't know if it was six in total or six in each leg, but they were definitely broken a ton. At the same time, does it matter? Oh, my God. Like, so he had to pick his right leg up and pull it across his body. Yes, so that he could flop over to his stomach. Ooh. Yeah, and the bones are not staying in one place. No. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's Uh, very bad to imagine. And I'm sure worse to experience. But he was on his stomach now, which was good. It was around 2 p.m. at that point, and the sun was beating down on him to the point where he was literally frying himself. He was scared that now he was on his stomach, something would sneak up on him from behind and then get him from his back. But there wasn't much else he could do at that point, so he just continued to pull himself inch by inch back toward the plane, which is when he heard the unmistakable sound of a herd of elephants, and they were coming directly at him. Because Greg is so familiar with the African bush and all of the animals and, you know, the predators and everything that he can literally tell what animal is coming toward him just by the sound of their foot hitting the ground. So even though he couldn't see the elephants and they were behind him, he knew that it was a herd of elephants. I mean, I guess for them, they're like very large and probably have a very loud footstep. But like even something as little as like he can tell if it's like a lion or a hyena or, you know, whatever, or a zebra just from like the way they put their foot down. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? I mean, the man has three degrees. He knows what's up. Well, sure. And he's also spent his whole life out there. So like I get it. But that was just a very cool thing for me. So he uh, very acutely understands how screwed he is. Yes. He knows that this is a very (laughs) bad situation. So he hears a herd of elephants coming toward him. And he knew that they would sense him there at some point. And if they got too close and sensed his presence too late, then they would get scared and they would all attack him. And then he would get stampeded. Stampeded? You know, he would get crushed. Wait. If he scares them with his presence, they'll stampede him? Yeah, because they're going to just, like, attack him because they feel, like, threatened. He's a ama- What? Well, because if they see him too late and they're already too close, they're not going to just run away. They're going to, like, go into attack mode. I don't know. It's just not what I would have thought because they're, like, ten times the size of a human. Well, don't find yourself in the African bush. Yeah, I'm like, what assholes, you know? <laughs> what assholes? They're elephants. They're just going to stampede something. Yeah. What if they see, like, a, I don't know. Thinking like a turkey. I'm like, what if they see a turkey in the African bush? I don't think they're going to. (laughs) They're just going to stampede it? They might. All the African turkeys. I don't know. Yeah, not cool elephants. Are there turkeys in Africa? Probably. Is that a stupid question? A a stupid question, but a good question. Let's give it a goog. Give it a goog for Thanksgiving. I imagine Google would just say, yes, you dumbass. (laughs) There's turkeys in Africa. Or, Or no idiot. Yeah, right. Well, it says that um, turkeys are pretty much everywhere except for the driest deserts in Africa. So probably not here. Right. So no, idiot. There's no turkeys in this area. (laughs) Okay, sure. And now that that is important at all, let's get back to it. Greg thought to himself that if the wind was wrong and they didn't detect him until the very last minute, that's when he would be in very big trouble. 
So suddenly he heard this huge screech from one of the elephants, and he was terrified that he was about to be trampled, because again, he couldn't see them. But miraculously, the herd started moving away from Greg, and he wasn't completely smushed. So that's good. They decided, let's take it back to the other place we just came from, away from Greg. Yeah, take a beat. Yeah. He just wanted to put his face down in the dirt and cry, but he didn't have any moisture left in his body to cry. So he literally couldn't put a tear out of his face, which is sad. He can't even cry. He couldn't even cry. No. The head warden of the Cinematella Wildlife Refuge, Norman English, organized a search and rescue party both on the ground and in the air, since the park was over 700 square miles. Norman and Peter decided the only place they could begin their search was at the site they last knew the rhino had been, since the tracking signal had last put it there. And they knew Greg hadn't radioed at all, but he was supposed to be going to search for the rhino, so this was their best bet. But there was a problem because although the rhinos were tagged, Greg had taken the only tracking device they had with him. So they had no way of knowing exactly where these rhinos were. Peter was sure that Greg was alive, but they didn't have much time. And with each minute that passed, the chances for Greg got even worse. Greg's condition at that point was critical from the dehydration and his internal injuries. As he dragged himself under the plane, he felt something almost sticky on his mouth. His lips were so dry that a piece of his lower lip came off no. and went to the back of his throat, which he then started choking on and then swallowed it. So he literally ate part of his lip on accident. Oh, dude, that's so gross. Yeah, that's definitely not cute. Only seconds later, he had a much bigger issue. He heard the sound of animal footsteps approaching again. Which one, Greg? (laughs) He knew that what was approaching him was a lion. Word. Yeah. He listened very closely as it got closer and closer until he heard it call out, which is when he knew that it was a lioness. This call was a very distinct sound that they make when they're calling their cubs. So this was not just a lioness. This was a mama lioness calling her babies, which made things far more dangerous. As the lioness got closer, he knew the only thing he could do to protect himself was to make a sharp noise to hopefully scare her off. But he also knew that if he made it too early or too late, it would be night-night Greg. You know what I mean? Mm. So when when he finally saw the silhouette of this lioness, he banged his big stick against the metal of the plane, which did scare her off. So go Greg. Go Greg. Like I said earlier, there had been a search party in the air looking for Greg, but with daylight fading very fast, they were going to have to call it off for the night soon. Still no sign of Greg or the wreckage. Greg actually heard the sound of the plane off in the distance and almost started to get excited until he remembered that he was still very much a needle in a haystack. The area they had to search was around a thousand square kilometers. He did scream out a few times to almost will the plane to come his way, but after he gave up, there was just nothing but silence. As the sun went down, he knew there was no chance of rescue until morning. By that time, it was around 6 p.m. It had been 10 hours since the crash. Peter and Norman, who were searching on the ground, were about to turn in as well, but as Norman got out of their Land Rover, Peter told him he was going to go out just one more time. Norman said there was no way he'd be able to find Greg in the dark, and it was a bad idea because he might lose them both if Peter went out. 
but Peter told him he'd be back soon before he drove off to search again. Greg, at that point, was losing hope. He couldn't tell if he wanted to live or die. And the more he thought about it, the more he came to peace with the idea of letting go. He almost felt like in that moment he had the power to switch off at any time and just fade off. He started thinking about the dogs, these amazing animals he had dedicated his life to, and he knew there was still so much he wanted to do. So from that second on, he wasn't going to give up the fight to survive, and if he did end up dying, he would fight up until the bitter end. Night fell very quickly, and with it comes a thick layer of darkness that easily conceals predators. Peter was still driving around looking, and through the darkness, he thought about how terrifying this must have been for Greg. At that point, there wasn't anything else he could do, and decided to turn in for the night as well. Greg was laying in complete silence. It was so quiet he could hear his own heartbeat. It made him very conscious of how alone he really was, and all he wanted was for this night to end. He had this reoccurring thought that a hyena would come up behind him and rip him to shreds. Hyenas have incredibly powerful jaws and are extremely dangerous. Greg had personally known a man who was killed by hyenas and was perfectly fit and healthy, and then he, they literally dragged his body off. So these are no joke. Hyenas are no joke. Yeah, so, I mean, they hunt in packs, so there's just no way you can... Yeah go up against 10 of them yeah totally so he was like i know a man who was perfectly fit and healthy and good and they literally dragged him away so this was a huge fear for him and he was also terrified of going to sleep because he knew he wouldn't wake up again if he did just from his injuries it was around 4 a.m 20 hours had passed since the crash and greg heard the sound of footsteps toward him once again and this time his nightmare was coming to life because it was a hyena. He thought it would come behind him, which would be the absolute worst because he would have no control at that point because it would just be his back and he can't like reach around and he can't move his legs. So that would be really bad. And once again, he used his knowledge of animal behavior to save his life. He waited for the precise right moment and again hit the plane with the stick loudly to scare it off. And after the sound of the stick hitting the metal dissipated, he held his breath and waited to hear if it had worked. He waited for what felt like forever until he heard the footfall of the hyena getting farther and farther away. So it did work, but it didn't run off. It was just like, eh, I'm, I'm not going to pursue this. And it just walked off. It just, you know, slowly walked away. Pretty much. Yeah. At that point, he was just waiting for the next terrible thing to happen because, I mean, how many terrible things could happen to one person in this situation? Yeah, I mean, you're in the African bush, though. It's like, yeah, very. if anything's in that area, it's probably going to pick up on you. For sure, and he's like the most vulnerable he could possibly be, so bad. Although through it all, he was trying to stay positive because in only an hour, the sun was going to rise. And when the sun finally did rise, after what was the longest hour of his life, he felt relief for a moment. But then, as the sun continued going up in the sky, he remembered that it was that very sun that almost killed him the day before. So it was a very bittersweet moment. But around 7am, it had been 23 hours after the crash, the search resumed. There were about 15 men who volunteered to go out and search at first light. It was decided that Norman would take the plane to search since he knew the area the best, 
and if anyone was going to find Greg, it would most likely be him. By that time, it had almost been 24 hours since Greg had been missing, and even Peter was starting to doubt that they would find him alive. Greg was still laying on the ground under the plane, and he had the GPS system that he had used to track the rhino, but it was completely useless otherwise. However, the GPS did keep track of every time Greg turned it on, and he had been periodically turning it on to try to figure out the time or what his coordinates were. But after a while, he started to think about the fact that this GPS might be the only thing that is recording when he was last alive and when he had died. And he felt bad about that because if his friends found him dead, there was a possibility they would look at the GPS and see that he had been alive at like 1140 and it was 12 p.m. So he was worried that they would live with a lot of guilt if something like that happened. This entire time, the search party had been looking in the wrong area. However, Norman radioed to Peter and told him he was going to check out what would have been the beginning of Greg's route. And he was doing that kind of just on a hunch. He was like, I don't know if he's going to be there, but we might as well give it a shot. On the ground, Greg was desperate for water. He had gotten the idea to lick a broken piece of window from the plane because he thought it was possible it may have gotten some kind of condensation in the night and retained some water, but nothing was there. As he did that, he heard the low rumbling sound of a plane off in the distance. When he heard the plane get louder and louder, he grabbed the radio once again because even though it hadn't been working, if he could get any kind of signal, even if it was a weak one, maybe it would do something. After calling Mayday, he thought he heard the plane's engine getting closer, and he started to believe that it had worked. A part of him knew he was lying to himself, but he also knew that if he fell into a depression, he was going to be a goner, so he had to keep some sense of hope alive. Not knowing whether he was imagining the search plane or if it was really there, Greg also grabbed a metal pipe from the wreckage and began swinging it above his head in hopes that some light would reflect off of it and whoever was in the plane would see him. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. Greg didn't know this, but his attempt had worked. And Norman spotted the wreckage because he saw a little glint of light come through from the metal pipe. He immediately called Mayday and told every search party that he had spotted the wreckage 40 miles south of the main search area. He hadn't seen any sign of life, but he told everyone to meet back at base camp since he couldn't land his plane there, so they would have to go by land. On the ground, Greg heard the plane getting farther and farther away. He tried to tell himself that he had been seen, but he had no way of knowing. But what he did know was that he was about to reach the point of no return if they didn't find him soon. Back at base camp, Peter wanted to see Greg at the scene no matter the outcome. He just wanted to get out there. Norman told him he didn't see any sign of Greg, but Peter didn't care. He was going regardless. I mean, this is your best indication yet. Definitely. I get it. I mean, they're best friends, Peter and Greg. I would go too. Yeah, I'd be doing 100 down the bush. Definitely. Never say that sentence again. <laughs> I, did, I mean, I imagine there's no road. No, you're going down the bush. No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> okay. We're 11 years old. I know. It's fine. I wonder what the top speed you can go is, or if like you have to slow, you like have to slow down because of Bumps. the terrain. Yeah, probably. How like I mean, they, they had roads. Oh, they did? I mean, some of or it was paths. off-roading, but they do have roads. Yeah, no, I was just imagining them having to slow down to, like, 
keep the car intact oh uh, yeah probably. instead of like really punching it i would imagine at that time it was 11 a.m it had been 27 hours since the crash and greg was barely conscious he was really fighting to keep his eyes open and he was incredibly weak but in that moment he heard footfall once again but this time it wasn't any animal he recognized it was a group of people approaching the group of them ran up to greg and immediately gave him water and assessed the situation Greg couldn't even speak at that point, but he knew that among the rescuers was Peter. He could barely believe his eyes that his best friend was there to save him. Peter couldn't believe Greg was alive either. They were asking Greg what had happened, but the only thing he could muster was wing and stall. Someone put their hand on Greg's shoulder and told him, you're in safe hands now. Which was a very validating feeling or good i don't know it was a good feeling he was saved comfort at last comfort that's the word comforting not validating that's you're so valid greg for living <laughs> could you imagine he goes up touches his shoulder. this must be hard for you that's so validating thank you <laughs> thank you tina um greg broke more than 30 bones in his leg can you believe dude well so he didn't break it in six places then the math is not math i guess 30 it was bones well sure but like six places but multiple bones in each place oh okay yeah so since the accident greg had gone through more than 100 operations to save his legs bro a hundred yes african surgeons thought they would have to amputate both of his legs but doctors saved them and as a result of the incident he lost three inches so he's now three inches shorter from when he started really yes after two weeks in a in the intensive care unit four months of rehabilitation and years of determination he has amazingly learned to walk again whoa before the accident he was he always treated every day like it was precious but he said it's even more precious now the most important thing to him is his conservation work. He wanted to tell his story to raise awareness of his conservation work with the wild dogs in Africa. Greg currently serves as the founder and executive board director of the Painted Dog Research Trust, an organization dedicated to the long-term research of painted dogs in Zimbabwe and other range states, including neighboring Zambia, Botswana, Nambia, and South America. South Africa. And dyslexia. <laughs> <laughs> he and 17 workers split into two units and carry out anti-poaching patrols through the national park where he almost lost his life. So he literally is traveling around the exact area where he almost died so many years ago. And since the first unit was deployed in 2001, they have collected more than 9,000 snares and poaching devices in the area and is now deemed to be under reasonable control. So... He's doing great work out there. Hell yeah. And he wanted to tell a story to spread that awareness. And here we are telling his story. That is the story of Greg Rasmussen. <laughs> Yay! He's yeah. alive. That's insane. So he was able to walk. He yeah. didn't like get back to like 100%. I he, mean, I don't imagine you can, but... I mean, he lost three inches off of his height, and now he can walk again. So like, I don't know how well he's walking, but he's walking. Can he like run? Can he do a light jog? Probably. Probably. I would imagine. But you said it was like four months of rehab? Two weeks ICU, four months of rehab, and years of determination. What does that mean? Just probably I, like PT. Okay, yeah, because I'm thinking like, this is bullshit. My hip surgery was a longer rehab than Greg, <laughs> who broke 30 bones. And his pelvis. And his pelvis. Yeah. 
I just hit, I needed a tire change. Like, sure. That was it. Yeah. But no, he's, I mean, clearly an incredible man. Yeah. I, I don't I mean, know. Undeterred. Like, I don't know how you go back just unfazed. Yeah. And you just keep doing what you're doing. I mean, that's what it seems people in these situations just do. They're like, it's my passion. Therefore, I don't care that I almost died. I'm going to do it again. Yeah. They're like, I would rather keep doing what I'm doing and possibly die rather than not do it. Yeah. I mean, I guess that shows real love and yeah, dedication. For yeah, for sure. But isn't that thing about the footfall really cool? That he just knew that it was a lioness and he knew that it was a hyena and elephants. Like, it's so cool to have that knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine how long you have to spend in the bush because you can't read about that, right? You no, have to, you, have to, you have to have years of experience in the bush. Yeah, that's real life experience right there. Yeah, incredible. Oh, does he still fly? No, he doesn't fly anymore. He he stopped so, flying those planes. Okay, so yeah. he's one of the more logical ones. Yes, yeah, no, he, he since then he has never flown one of those planes again. And who? Who can blame him? I mean, I don't. I don't blame him. That would be insane if he did, though. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's his story. Why don't we move on? What is your good thing? You go first. Okay. My good thing is that my sister is coming to my parents' house and where I am right now. And uh, we're going to see her this afternoon. Oh, shout her beep, out. Beep, beep. Hey, Liana. Hi. I don't know if we were going to say her name, but oh, shout who cares? her out. That's my sister's name. Who cares? <laughs> um, my good thing is that I got authentic new york pizza hell yeah this past weekend and i thought i was gonna eat two ended up eating three and that's just how <laughs> as it you should and they're enormous they i mean they're large pies it was sizes. really good and we yeah. had a little bit of liquid courage behind that <laughs> oh yeah so you can't really you can't really the body wants what the what the body I mean, wants what am i gonna say no well, what am i gonna what say I, no to a third slice of here? pizza in new york what no. do you think i'm just gonna say no i forget who was like I'm not gonna eat this slice. Does anyone want it? And I just go, <laughs> Yeah, I want it. Start, start rubbing my hands together. Let me at him. <laughs> Let me at him. Hey, I'm walking here. Yeah, but, I mean, that there's just. <laughs> I'm eating here. Hey, I'm eating what? here. Um, I mean, but there's just so much going on in that city. Yeah. I mean, I know that you have told me like it's like no other, but it really is like no other. <laughs> if you've ever been, I can been. report that you're not lying. <laughs> you're like now that I have been there, I can say that you are I can telling say the truth. <laughs> everything that everyone says is true. Sure, I verified it. I was the sole verifier of these Thank facts. You. But I don't know. It's just really surprising to me because you go to Seattle, Detroit, Boston. Um, even LA things. is like not is nowhere near as congestion oh it's, it's spread out so it's different like, yeah totally different um but yeah it's a it's a cool place but lots of hustle and bustle yeah a lot of a lot of angry people a lot of honking the people people honk for no reason they're just stuck in traffic they're angry they lay on the horn it's and so funny as we were like in the city he's like are people gonna honk like this the whole time and i'm like yeah i'm like <laughs> can we stop there's nowhere to go we're just gonna we're in the city together, baby. It is what it is. Relax. But the good thing is the pizza. We ate it. It was amazing. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like to check out the poll that I recently posted for bonus episode number 11, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. 
If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or something crazy that has happened to you that you would like to potentially hear in an upcoming listener's episode, send it to knowtodaypodcast.gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>